Let's, uh, let's just bow our hearts, shall we, as we come uh, to this study this morning. Father, thank you for your grace, for your goodness. Lord, we thank you that we have this opportunity to meet this morning to study your word. Lord, please just speak to our hearts, we pray. And Father, these scriptures we studied this morning, Lord, may we be encouraged by them, edified and yet challenged as well. Lord, we pray that we would grow in grace, Lord. And we recognize sometimes when we grow, there can be some growing pains. Um, but Lord, stretch us, we pray. Make us what you want us to be for your purpose, for your glory. Uh, and Lord, make us holy, we pray. Uh, Lord, as Peter's already admonished us, we should be holy because you are holy. Lord, let us become more and more like you. We just give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to uh, carry on in our study. We're going into chapter 4. Just a, a quote by Chuck Misler to start us off. He kind of, in his study for this chapter, he put this up front. He said, are we human flesh undergoing a spiritual experience or are we spiritual beings undergoing a human experience? Now, that's an interesting question. Are we just humans and going through a spiritual experience? Or actually, are we spiritual beings and for now are just in our human form, our human situation? And I, I would probably challenge you to say that it is actually the latter, that we really are spiritual beings. We've been created as spiritual beings. Uh, and this is the way we should be approaching our lives now as believers. Now, as we go into the chapter, Peter's uh, been highlighting that we should imitate Christ. Paul said exactly the same thing, uh, that we should follow after Christ's example and be like Jesus. Um, you know, Christ submitted to the will of his father. This is what Peter's been telling us, which was for the sake of God's divine plan. And so Jesus went through and endured all that he went through because he recognized that there was a bigger picture, that God was working in the midst. And though some of the things that Jesus went through and endured, and obviously the cross, were very unpleasant, Jesus endured it because he recognized that there was a much bigger, much greater purpose. He was doing the will of his father. Throughout his ministry, Jesus kept reiterating that point, that he'd come to do the will of his father. And so we are to likewise submit. We're to submit to government and authority. This is what Peter's already been saying in the previous chapters as we've looked at. You know, for us particularly, in regard to government, we should submit to them. Employers, also, we should be uh, submissive, even if they're not good employers, so that God is glorified. We're told that wives are to submit to husbands, and we spent a lot of time talking about the details of that and so on. And then also we're to submit to each other. And again, all of these are for the sake of God's divine plan. Just as Jesus did what he did for the sake of God's divine plan, so we're to follow and obey these um, instructions we're given for the sake of God's plan. We've also uh, been looking, and Peter's made it very clear, that Christ has suffered reproach because of that which he came to do, because of being obedient to the will of the Father. And so we likewise should be ready and willing to suffer for living godly lives. If we live godly lives in this world, we will suffer in one way or another. So we jump straight into verse 1 of chapter 4. And we read there, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Quite a, a powerful verse as we start to, to break it down. The first thing really just to pour uh, or to, to, to ponder over is this arm yourselves. You know, it, it's a military term. It's being ready for battle. It's being prepared for war. Now, of course, there are many uh, verses in scripture that allude to the fact that we are in a spiritual war. Sometimes we kind of forget that. Sometimes we just go through our daily routine. You know, if you were really at war, you wouldn't leave your base camp without being prepared. You'd take every precaution necessary before you left. And yet as Christians, we get a little blasé. We get a little complacent. And we often leave home without being spiritually prepared for what the day may bring, for the challenges that we're going to face, for the opposition from the enemy that we will encounter. And so consequently, when we encounter that opposition from the enemy, we either stumble or fall or we get shot down. You know, there's, there's a negative result because we weren't prepared. 
This is just, again, just building on what Peter's already been saying. And again, that opening line, for as much then. So just as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, we should be ready to do the same. And it says, arm yourselves. Okay, be ready for this battle. Likewise, with the same mind. Now, we're going to come on to that mind a bit in a second. But, you know, Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 4.10 tells us that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We're not going out and using bows and arrows or guns and bombs and tanks and, you know, whatever other machines of warfare that man has invented. No, we're using something that is actually far more powerful. All, all man's weapons can do is deal with the physical. They can't touch the spiritual. But the battle that we're fighting and the weapons that we are to take are spiritual weapons to fight in a spiritual war. We, although we can't see it with our eyes, just as we were talking about earlier this morning with that situation with Elisha, it is very real indeed. And that opening quote I read a moment ago from Chuck Misler, you know, we should be mindful of the fact that we are living, we are spiritual beings living in a human form at the moment. Now, we get on to this second part here. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Now, this is interesting because this is the mind of Christ that is being spoken of here. Now, again, Chuck Misler makes the point the mind is not the brain. It's the entire process from thinking through resolution in action. Okay, so we are made up of body, soul and spirit. That's how we are made up as human beings. We are made in the image and the likeness of God. There's God the Father, there's God the Son and there's God the Holy Spirit. Uh, of course, Jesus was the, the, far, or the, the, the Godhead manifest in a body. You know, so we have uh, our, our uh, body, our soul and our spirit. The body analogous to Christ, the soul analogous to God the Father and spirit obviously analogous to the Holy Spirit. Those three component parts that make us up. Now, the real us is actually the soul, okay? Our body, of course, when we die, just goes back into the, to the ground and decays. Our spirit, we're told in Ecclesiastes, goes back to God who gave it. So the real us, the eternal part of us is our soul. Our soul is made up of our heart and of our mind. Now, those two component parts work sometimes together, sometimes in, in conflict with each other. You know, when someone falls in love, how the heart can be saying one thing, the mind can be saying something very different. You know, so we, we sometimes find those things in conflict, but often they are working together. But the, the heart is the emotional part of us. It responds to feelings and emotions and, and those kind of things. The mind is the, the logical, the rational, the thinking part in a sense. And we need both of those elements um, uh, to make us who we are. But we're told here that we should be uh, uh, arm ourselves with the same mind. In other words, really what it's saying is that we should start to think as Jesus thought. You know, the battlefield of our warfare is the mind. That, that's where this battle takes place. There's been all sorts of books written about spiritual warfare, uh, and there's only a handful I've ever read that have been helpful. A lot of them just go off on tangents, and they introduce um, some very erroneous doctrines at times. I read one some years ago that for a number of years, kind of really as a young teenager, just confused me about the whole idea of spiritual warfare and what we were trying to accomplish but Corinthians makes it very, very clear um, that, again, the weapons are not carnal, but they're mighty through God for bringing down strongholds. And then people go off on tangents as to what are those strongholds? Well, it tells us that it's the thought, it's everything in our mind that has exalted itself against the knowledge of God. You see, the battleground of spiritual warfare is your mind. That's where it all takes place. That's why we need to clothe ourselves with the same mind that Jesus had. That's how we're to be prepared. Now, we're given, of course... In Ephesians 6, uh, a lot of armour that we can uh, prepare ourselves with. That's another study in itself, but it's a really important piece of scripture to understand. But, you know, it's in the mind where the battle is fought and it's where it's won or where it's lost. Now, Christ, if you like, made up his mind, as it were, to endure the cross knowing what it would accomplish. You see, Jesus didn't go to the cross looking forward to it, excited about it. This is going to be a wonderful experience. It was nothing to do with that. Jesus knew the horror of what awaited him. And it wasn't so much the beating by the Romans or the Jews. Uh, it wasn't so much being nailed to the cross and the physical pain and all of that. Of course, that was horrible enough. 
But Jesus knew that upon the cross, he was going to take from God the Father the full weight of God's wrath for our sin. That's what Jesus was going to endure. Now, Jesus, knowing that, intellectually understood the implications, didn't balk at it, didn't say, I I, I can't go through it, I don't want to do it. Jesus endured it because he knew what was coming. He knew what what the other side of this would be. And that he was prepared to go through it. And this is really what Peter's now saying to us. That we shouldn't be ignorant of the choices we make. We should go into these things with our eyes wide open. Knowing what as Christians we've effectively signed up to. And therefore how we should live our lives. What the consequences are going to be. And how we should deal with them. And this is what in this chapter he's going to go on to tell us. Notice that he says that Christ has suffered for us and that we, uh, sorry, that he, and he says that he, that in the, generally now, you and I, anyone that has suffered in the flesh, it says has ceased from sin. Now, in Hebrews 12 verse 4, we're reminded that we've not actually resisted to the point of shedding blood when we're striving against sin. Of course, the comparison there is that in the Garden of Eden, uh, sorry, in the, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus shed those drops of blood that that medical condition uh hema uh where your capillaries literally burst and the blood comes out of sweat under extreme anguish and pressure that's exactly what happened to jesus in the garden it's dr luke that gives us the the details of that you know but none of us have ever come to that place we we may have struggled with sin and wrestled with sin but we've never come to that point where we fought against it so intensely where the temptation was there for jesus just to walk away and not go through with it and yet he resisted and we're told effectively that we should have that same mind that jesus had being willing to endure these things most of us you know when it comes to resisting the flesh when we resist temptation, we go so far and then often we'll cave in, we give in. I mean, just take a very simple analogy. When you think about maybe trying to diet or trying to abstain from particular food, from chocolate or from whatever else, you know, you, you can be very good for a week or two, maybe. Um, but then it gets to the point, you think, oh, you know, I, and we start to rationalize and reason with ourselves why it's going to be OK. Well, put that in the context of sin, you know, and, and sin is very insidious the way it keeps trying to wear us down. And, you know, the idea that Peter's trying to get across here is that we should have that same attitude towards sin that Jesus had. And actually, when we come to that place, we can come to a place where, as it says here, we cease from sin. Now, it doesn't imply that we never sin again, but it's we cease from being under the influence of sin. Now, Peter's going to go on to say that Effectively, we haven't got time as believers to be playing around with sin any longer. There is a job to do and time is running out. This word, though, ceased here. Uh, If you're particularly interested uh, in the Greek, it's uh, the past perfect tense. It's a passive verb. uh, And really what it means is it has been released from. You see, you strive, you struggle against sin to a point. But then once you go to Christ, once you receive that grace, when you are delivered from these things then you are absolutely released from the power of sin in your life in any one particular area now it's not a uh, uh you're delivered once and that's it everything's fine and dandy for you as a christian from then on you never struggle again no there are many things that we struggle with uh, as believers and different things and, and sometimes the things that we we now struggle with we look back over years ago and we didn't even realize they were a problem But as we grow in grace, the Holy Spirit points out to us, illuminates in our lives things that are not right, that are not pleasing to God. And gradually we deal with those things. As we come to the Lord, they're dealt with one by one. And gradually that that sin is kind of removed as we become transformed by the renewing of our mind, as Romans 12 tells us we should be. So this idea that, you know, if we strive, if we suffer in the same way that Jesus did, then also we're going to come to that place where we will be released from the power of sin. You know, Jesus, uh, or, or rather um, James, tells us that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. And if we resist the devil, the devil will flee from us. But there's this key word there, resist. We have to resist the devil. You, you can't just pray, Lord, you know, lead me not into temptation 
and then assume that there will never be temptation. Of course, when we pray that prayer, what we're acknowledging is that there is temptation all around us, and we're asking that the Lord would lead us away from those things that would cause us to stumble. But that doesn't imply that we won't ever come across things, or we won't inadvertently do things that could put us in a place where we might stumble. And when we are there, we have to resist sin. That's what scripture tells us. It's a challenge. It's not something that we just, you know, naturally do. Because what is sin? Well, it's the the desires. It's the lust of the flesh. It's the things that, that verse from Psalm 119 we looked at earlier. It's the things that we naturally find ourselves wanting to do. It's why that psalmist cried out, wanting to be transformed, but recognizing in reality that there was still a problem in his life. Is what Paul says in Romans 7. You see, here again, God is the implied agent. We need to understand that this work of sanctification, and that really is the broad uh, subheading of what we're looking at here, is being set apart for God. That's what sanctification is. God is the one who does it. It's a work of grace. But just as with salvation, we have to be willing. So with sanctification, we have to go to God and give him permission to work, to give us the grace to overcome these things. We resist, we draw near to him, and he draws near to us. The ruling power of sin has been broken once we do this. And while we are unable to live a perfect life here and now, the believer is free from the dominance of sin. And that's where we should be as Christians. That's where we should be as believers getting ready for the rapture. We should be cleansed from those things of the world. And Peter's going to give us a list of some of the things that we want to struggle with. But we should have come to that place now where sin is no longer dominant in our life. Now, the truth is, for some of us, that is still a problem. Sin does still have an area where in our lives it is dominant. And so this is a very important lesson for us this morning to encourage us to move away, to resist those things, to fight against it, to recognize that there is actually warfare going on in our minds, that Satan is trying desperately to pull you away from the things of God. God has a whole arsenal of spiritual weapons that we can take hold of, that we can use in this fight. But we have to go and take them and we have to go to him and ask for the grace and then he will give it. And we can have victory over sin in our life. This isn't just a concept. It's a reality. And many believers come to that place of recognizing that when we are challenged by sin, that we can come to the Lord and he will really give us grace a power that is beyond our natural power. The children this morning are looking, of course, at the life of Samson. Samson, at those times when he needed greater strength, he didn't just go and do a few extra press-ups and kind of get, get kind of really pumped and ready to go for it. He knew that he would have to rely on the Lord. The Lord gave him strength when he needed it. It's the same with us. The same lesson applies to both. In Romans 6, 20 to 23, a verse that's... Uh, I just read this many years ago and it really stuck. It just says, for when you were servants of sin, and that's how we all were. We were we were beholden to, we were, sin was our master, we were its servant. You were free from righteousness. You know, another word, a way of putting that, we, we were unable to live righteously. Okay. And so, but then the question is asked, Paul says this, what fruit had you then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? All right, so just stop and think. When you consider the things in your life that once you allowed, that once you did, maybe places you went, the people you spent time with, things you chose to do in your spare time, your hobbies, your pastimes, whatever else, okay? Anything that you now recognize as not being good or healthy or helpful in your Christian walk, look at those things now and then ask yourself the question, actually, in which way or what way did they benefit you? Don't you find as you look back, you're ashamed? That's what Paul is saying. What fruit did they produce? In what way were they a blessing to you? You know, when you did things that you now recognize as being sin, when you look back, how have they enriched your life? How have they blessed your life? How did those experiences actually help you in any way? And if we're honest, we're going to say, well, actually, they didn't. They, they made me feel ashamed. They made me feel empty. They made me feel as if I've betrayed myself. You know, that's what sin does. And this is exactly what Paul is saying. He says, for the end of those things is death. He says, but now... 
being made free from sin. Now it is twisted round. We've been made free from sin. It no longer is our master dictating to us what we do. We now have a choice. Now, yes, it's true. We can choose to sin. But we have the choice also to resist sin, to reject it, to draw near to God. And again, he will draw near to us to resist the devil and he will flee from us. So being made free from sin and become servants to God. God is now a master. You have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. So now you think of the fruit that's produced in your life. You think of the love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. You think, and faith, of course, I missed the faith out, but faith's in there, of course. All of these things, the fruit of the Spirit, not fruits, by the way, plural, it's fruit singular. All of those grow together when we become believers. And of course, if we are in Christ, then that fruit should be growing and overflowing. Now, they're the fruits we want, are they not? When you think of the best times in your life, the best moments in your life, are they not the times when you've been closer to God? Are they not the times when you've been worshipping him or serving him, walking with him, recognising his goodness, being aware of his grace? You know, are they not the times when you're experiencing his peace that passes understanding? Are they not the times when you just find yourself being gentle or kind to other people in a way that you know is not of you naturally? You know, that's the fruit. It's tangible. The fruit of the world is emptiness. The fruit of Jesus is fullness and completeness. And again, not just here and now, but notice the end everlasting life. Think of all that is to come. All the blessings are still awaiting us by living a godly life. And then we're told for the wages of sin, the payment that the sin gives is death. That's the that's what you get. When you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. But in contrast, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what Paul says in Romans 6. Let's carry on in First Peter into the second verse. It says that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. Romans 8 and 5 and 6 says this, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Really just echoing what we said a moment ago. Now, there is, of course, a challenge here because you have a choice how to live the rest of your days. I mean, let's just press reset here this morning. Let's forget about what's happened in your life since you became a Christian up until this point. However many times you may have stumbled, whatever things you've you've fallen uh, before, whatever idols you've fallen at the feet of, uh, and you look back and you look back with shame and regret on those things. Let's press reset because the good thing is that God's mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Okay, it's because of his mercies that we're not consumed, by the way. So we're here this morning and God is giving us this opportunity to say, okay, how are you now from this moment, from this day, going to live the rest of your life? We've we've only got from now until the rapture. That That's the period of time we've got. In all probability, it's less time than most of us have had on earth already. We don't know when the Lord's coming, but looking at the world, looking at what's going on, looking at what's going on in the Middle East, looking at the, the pandemic situation, looking at the wars, the rumors of wars, the earthquakes, uh, the famines, pestilences, all these things that the Bible says will be coming. The idea that, that we're getting so close now to a one world currency that, um, you know, with what's going on in Israel, the temple is surely going to be rebuilt at some point soon with all that's going on. Well, with that in mind, you only got from now, from today until the rapture. How are you going to live those days? You know, we're on the home run now. You know, some of you may find this very hard to believe, but I've recently started going to the gym. Um, I'm able now because of uh, the work situation. Um, there's a gym just near our office where I work up in New Malden. Um, so I've started going. Uh, and I've set myself some little personal goals each morning of how far I'm running and things like that. Um, and I guarantee every day I'm trying to run at least a mile on the treadmill in the morning and doing other things as well. Now, that, that, that mile becomes quite hard. I get halfway through and I think I've had enough. I don't want to do it anymore. I, I want to stop. But, you know, there's that. But it's only, you know, another half a mile to go. And then as by the time you've thought through that, you've only got, you know, um, 
the, the, the last quarter of a mile to run and, and think, well, I've got this far. I'm not going to give up now. And it's having that determination. Now, that's just in the flesh. That's just just a little bit of willpower to keep going. You know, in the spirit, in the spiritual realm, you're not doing it on your own. God's grace is there to help. It's almost like a a, a wind behind pushing you, helping you to, to move forward. I mean, in a boating situation, it's like getting the wind in your sails and finding the Lord is just, just moving you forward. And that's what we, we need to, to be like, in a sense, going for the prize. You've got a limited time left. Why can't we all, as believers, as a fellowship, live every single day like it's our last day, like we really, truly believe that heaven is a real place, that Jesus is going to come back, that he is going to judge. And we're going to look at this in a short while in the, in the verses here. Uh, our, our deeds, they're all going to be uh, laid to account before the throne. Now, given all of those things, we've only got a short time. That we should no longer live the rest of our time in that way. You know, you can live for the flesh and, of course, forfeit blessing and reward. That That's your choice. You can do that. And it doesn't mean, by the way, you won't be saved. Because salvation wasn't dependent upon you getting it right. It wasn't dependent upon you resisting sin. It wasn't dependent upon you becoming holy. It was dependent upon the completed work of Jesus Christ. And all you have to do is accept it. That's it. That's salvation. So you're saved. But once you're saved, the big question is, now what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with that grace that's available? You see, again, let's just go back to the situation with Samson. Samson had that strength, but if he had chosen not to use it, well, it wouldn't have helped him. But of course, he did use it. God gave him that strength to act in those moments when he needed to. Well, for us. You know, God will give us the grace when we go to him. God will strengthen us to resist temptation. We're told very clearly in Corinthians that none of us are tempted beyond that which we are able. In fact, God will always make a way out when there is a temptation. When you see that door, go for it. Just like Joseph. As I said before, you know, the situation with Joseph in Egypt Often I think we have this mindset that Potiphar's wife was some kind of aging, kind of Joan Collins kind of character. Um, in truth, because of the age the Egyptians typically died at, 40 years old was a good age for them to get to at that time. If you remember, Pharaoh was so amazed that Jacob was 130 when he came to see him. Um, but you know, at that time, the, the people in Egypt typically would have been younger. So Pharaoh's wife would have probably been a, a younger lady and no doubt a very beautiful because of the position Potiphar was in. Uh, so I think it was a Pharaoh moment ago. Potiphar's wife uh, would have been a very beautiful young lady. And that temptation to Joseph physically would have no doubt been a very real, very strong temptation. But what did he do? He rejected it. He fled. He he ran away from sin, recognizing the danger, recognizing, in a sense, the spiritual battle that was taking place. Joseph, of course, could have said, well, nobody's going to see. Nobody knows. I'm not hurting anyone. You know, and quite probably um, Potiphar was already aware that Mrs. Potiphar uh, wasn't the kind of uh, uh, good wife that she should have been. Uh, this probably wasn't the first situation that she'd been in where this kind of thing had happened. So actually the biggest problem for Potiphar was that other people became aware of it. That was what then embarrassed him. That's why he act, act, had to act. He didn't want to put Joseph in prison. Of course he didn't, because he was his best and most loyal and faithful servant and everything was prospering under Joseph's hand. But of course Potiphar was forced into that situation. So but Joseph, in this situation, just saw what was going on and fled. Wasn't allowed it going to happen. You know, had Joseph have not done that, then Joseph wouldn't have been put in prison. And this is so apt in regard to what we're looking at this morning, of that whole idea of suffering. Because by doing what Joseph did, by fleeing, it ended up in him being put in prison. Now, initially, you think, oh, Lord, you know, I did the right thing and here I am in prison. But you know what? As a result of that, by being obedient to the will of God, two individuals later were put in prison at the same time. Of course, the butler and the baker. And you know the account how eventually the butler is raised up to new life. We have the bread and the wine situation there. And eventually, because of that situation, Joseph is brought out of prison and made the second in command of the land. And then, of course, children of Israel, Jacob's uh, children, Jacob himself, all come down to Egypt. And because of that, the nation then becomes a nation. It was just a family. It becomes a nation. Joseph's decision at that moment, when to you and I, we'd look on that and think no one else saw it. That decision 
changed the course of history. Although no one else saw what was going on, Joseph's decision in the dark at that moment changed the course of history. Had Joseph not obeyed, there would have been no nation of Israel. The family would have likely died out in Canaan of starvation. There would have been no Messiah. You know, there'd have been no possibility of, of eternity for the rest of mankind. You start to realize how much was hanging on that one decision of Joseph. So don't ever let Satan convince you that when you're tempted, it doesn't matter. No one else will see. It's not important because you don't know what God is going to do in the next five minutes. You don't know what God is going to lay upon your heart to pray for that could change the outcome of eternity for another soul. Or it could change your own destiny in different ways that we can't even begin to appreciate. Again, he that no longer that he should no longer live the rest of his time in, in the flesh to the lust of man, but to the will of God. Now, with Christ as our example of patience in suffering, how can we, who owe him everything, do any less than arm ourselves with the same mind and so demonstrate that we are his by faith now again often god uses suffering to keep us going into that which would dishonor him sometimes god allows things to stop us going in a direction that wouldn't be right verse three for the time past of our life may suffice us uh, uh, to have wrought the will of the gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness and lust excess of wine revelings banquetings abominable idolatries well we have a number of these lists in the New Testament. And here Peter is just giving us another one. This is how we were. Now we might think, oh, but I wasn't like that. Well, actually, yeah, you were. We were all like this in different ways. Not, you know, we always like to look at someone else who's, who we think is worse than we are. But, you know, when you compare yourself with God's standard, you realize how far fallen from God's grace you were until through Christ you came back to that relationship with him. Now, <clears throat> this is a a clear mandate that God wants us to make a definite break with the past. That is what is required. And Galatians 5 speaks again of the works of the flesh. He gives us another list there. Uh, and that is in contrast to the fruit of the spirit, uh, which we mentioned a while ago. Now notice again, the time past of our life may suffice. You know, we've already wasted enough of our most inelastic resource you can't stretch time we only have the time we have and we've for many of us a lot of the the, the time of our life has gone is past okay for many of us we possibly have less days ahead of us than we now have behind us for some it's the other way around you've got way more ahead of you than you have behind but wherever you are whatever's past we need to be looking forward to the future time is a resource that is eaten up that you don't get back you never get back last week you'll never get to do that again you won't ever be able to relive last week and get it right to do it better you know or last year but what we can influence what we can change is what we do tomorrow what we do in the week ahead of us and all of us need to be doing this and let me say again we all need to be praying for each other it's so important that we are praying and uplifting each other that as we go through these struggles, these battles, that we are encouraging each other, that we're blessing each other. How do we want our time here to be remembered in the light of eternity? I'm always uh, quite um, curious to look at some of the great teachers and ministries uh, that have certainly been a blessing to my own life. Um, but throughout history, it's interesting that you, you know people like Dave Hunt, which many of you will be familiar with, just an incredible Bible expositor and teacher, wrote so many great books, really great resources. Dave did the majority of his ministry once he'd retired. Chuck Misler, another individual, of course, who I'm very much indebted to for the teaching in my life early on, but Chuck Misler, the majority of his ministry was in the latter part of his life. Now, that's not to say in the early part of those two individuals I've mentioned, in the early part of their lives, they, they didn't do things that were for, for the glory of God. Both of them knew the Lord from, from a young age and served God. But you see how in a short period of time, a lot could be accomplished. That's the point I'm making. A lot could be accomplished that, in a sense, in the light of eternity, will stand out as being the hallmark of those people's lives. 
Now, for you and I, whatever has happened to this point, we can put to one side because the Lord can still do incredible things with you and through you in the days we have remaining. Again, just between today and the rapture, whenever that occurs, could be next week, could be this week, this, this week coming. Whenever the rapture occurs, between now and then is the time we have left. Let's live it for Jesus Christ. Again, this, this resource we have time is never going to be given back to us. Those, that list there, again, I don't need to go through and explain and talk through. You understand those things. You, all those things the world loves. They, they talk about those things as being normal. And then we have this verse four. It says, wherein they, the world, the Gentiles, the word Gentiles here uh, is used um, um, connotatively, just speaking of the unbelieving world, okay, as opposed to the believing um, Christians. Wherein they think it's strange that you run not with them into the same excess of riot. You know, speaking evil of you, the world doesn't get it when you don't want to do the things they want to do because they find pleasure sin for a season you know that, that's what it is that they find pleasure in those things for now and if you don't want to do those things they think there must be something wrong with you what they don't realize is you find even greater pleasure in serving jesus christ you find greater peace and happiness and joy and fulfillment in that which is spiritual that which is holy that which is righteous we are no longer slaves of sin they are in a position where they have to obey their master sin we are in a position where we want to obey our master jesus christ you know being a biblical christian is more than just politically incorrect in the days in which we live it is becoming worse the world hates believers jesus said as much that the world hated him you know what if it hated him it's going to hate us too and they will speak evil of us that word by the way in the the greek uh, is literally the word blaspheme the, the, the world the word uses our name in a derogatory way you know as if there's something wrong with us because we don't run along with them and do the things they do well once again it's because our eyes have been opened spiritually and we no longer want to be slaves to sin and then we're told verse five that who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead we're all going to give an account to god all of us now, either we are going to be judged according to our deeds, the things we have done, our works. This is what we write, read in Revelation, the great white throne judgment. Everyone who goes to that judgment seat, as it were, the great white throne judgment will be judged according to their works, what they've done. And guess what? You're never going to be in a situation where your good works outweigh your bad works. That's not how it works. If you've committed one crime, you are guilty before a judge doesn't matter how many good things you've done one crime is sufficient for you to be punished and to have some sort of um, sentence passed on you well how are you going to stand before our holy god now of course for christians we have a different judgment we have the judgment seat of christ where we will be rewarded depending upon our good works because our sin has already been washed away it's been paid for by the blood of christ so there is no need to judge christians for our sin for any of the bad stuff it's all been paid for by jesus christ that's why on the cross jesus said a greek word to telestai it means paid in full absolutely completely paid for nothing left to pay you know and we've all got this appointment and we're either going to stand before the judgment seat of christ or we're going to stand before the great white throne judgment. They are the two options depending on whether you've accepted Christ or rejected him. And again, this giving account. You know, are you prepared for your final exam? 2 Corinthians 5.10 is the verse that tells us that we all will stand before the beamer seat or the judgment seat of Christ as Christians. You know, when you are there, when your works are being assessed, will they be, as 1 Corinthians 3 tells us, as gold, silver and precious stones that are purified through fire? Or will all the stuff you've done between today, because we're pressing reset today, between today and the rapture, will all those things be as wood, hay and stubble? You, you've lived for yourself, for your own pleasure. You've lived for the things of the world. And all that stuff will get burnt up. It has no eternal value whatsoever. And do you want to stand there before Jesus when you have an opportunity to receive those crowns? We'll talk about crowns in the next chapter. Not today, but maybe next week, Lord willing. You know, we're not going to be in a position uh, or we don't want to be in a position where we could have received crowns that we then give to Jesus as a love gift to say thank you. Only to find that actually we didn't earn any crowns because we were so intent on living for ourselves. 
Well, then we have this strange verse thrown here, verse 6. For this cause, okay, now this is speaking again of this, this time of judgment. Let's just go back. We're all going to give account. Everyone is going to give account, okay, to Jesus who's going to judge the living and the dead, the quick and the dead. He says, for this cause, the gospel was preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Now, if you look in commentaries, you will find many different uh, attempted interpretations of this verse, what this verse actually means. But I am pretty confident that this is just following on from what Peter has already been telling us in the previous chapter. And last week we looked at this. Clearly, the context is not talking about those who are not saved, because otherwise there'd be no point in adding that last line, but live according to God in the spirit. The reason for adding that can only mean that this is in reference to people who are going to heaven for eternity. So why then does Peter include this? Well, because of what we looked at last time, the comments about the angels that left their first estate, that sinned, that were cast down into Tartarus. Peter's going to mention that in Second Peter again. We'll come to that. Um, but as we looked at the details last week, the angels that sinned in the time before the flood and God imprisoned them. And then Jesus, at the time of the crucifixion, went down into Hades, where there were these two separate compartments, effectively. There was the area known as Paradise, which was the area where uh, Abraham and, of course, Adam, Daniel, David, all these great saints from the Old Testament, that's where they were waiting. And then there was the other place, which was a place of torment. Now, there's no record in Scripture to imply that Jesus went to those who were there who were unbelieving or unrighteous. There was no need. They'd already made their decision that they didn't need the gospel preached to them. They'd already rejected the message prior to their death. However, those who were believing, they, of course, have this promise of eternity with God effectively, but only through Jesus Christ. Now, the reason they couldn't have gone to heaven prior to that moment is that nobody can go to heaven but through Jesus Christ. The only way to the Father is through Jesus. That is the same for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, for all the Old Testament saints. So that I believe this verse is simply building on what Peter's already said, and he fits nicely in the theme here. For this cause, okay, that God is judging the living and the dead, the gospel was preached to them that are dead. Which who who's it referring to? Well, I believe that it's the righteous souls in Hades, in paradise. Abraham, Noah, Abraham, David, they all had to accept Jesus as the Messiah, believing on him to be saved. Of course, they did accept. They were looking forward to him coming. They were waiting for the Messiah. David wrote prophetically so much of what Jesus would say and do. And of course, Abraham prophetically speaks of the place where the father would offer up his son and so on. So all of these individuals look forward to that, but they had to accept Jesus prior to them being able to go to heaven. And then, of course, we have that great line we looked at last week, that Jesus then leads captivity captive. He takes all those individuals who are in that waiting room, holding place, if you like, and removes that place to paradise, to heaven, uh, as we understand. And now any soul that dies as a believer will immediately go to be with the Lord in heaven. And Paul makes that very clear. So, Remember the verse says again, for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh. And how are they judged? They're judged by what Christ has accomplished, but live according to God in the spirit. So we're all judged now in the same way. This is what the verse is saying, that we're all judged according to God's grace. Every soul is going to be judged depending on their relationship to Jesus Christ. So I want to read this to you uh, from C.S. Lewis. He says this, God is going to invade this earth in force. But what is the good of saying you are on his side then? When you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something it never entered your head to conceive, comes crashing in. Something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time it will be God without disguise something so overwhelming that it will either strike irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature it will be too late then to choose your side there is no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up that will not be the time for choosing 
It will be the time when we discover which side we have really chosen, whether we realised it before or not. Now, today, this moment, is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. That's by C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity. Of course, he's speaking of the choice of accepting Jesus or not accepting Jesus. But, you know, in some senses, we can apply that to where we are as individuals. That today is a moment of decision of how we're going to live between now and the rapture. Verse 7 says, But the end of all things is at hand. Be you therefore sober and watch unto prayer. This is just a, a kind of the key verse. In fact, here... I'm just going to read to you um, some Dake's commentary. These are four commands that are now given. The first one is this, be sober. The second, watch unto prayer. In the next verse, it says, above all, have fervent love among yourselves. And the fourth one, be hospitable without murmuring. Okay, so those are the four commands now. This is like the, the key central section of this chapter. Uh, and really, it's saying that Christ suffered but obeyed his Father's will because of what will be accomplished by his obedience. And now it's our turn. So the end of all things is at hand. Yeah, we're running out of time. So let's be sober. Let's watch and let's pray. We've been living in the light of this truth for almost 2,000 years now. You know, and we are to keep the end in view and not to live for the passing moment, but as one who anticipates the end of all things, which is at hand. You know, and notice here that we are exhorted to think soberly. In fact, We'll come to that verse in Romans in a moment, Romans 12, verse 3. This word, though, sober, uh, sophrono is the word, is to be of sound mind. It should be translated sober-minded, really, here. Uh, therefore, be sober-minded. Again, it really links into what Peter says at the beginning of the chapter. Peter uses this expression a lot, okay? And he actually means, be ye, therefore, intelligent. The, the world mocks Christians and says that, you know, we don't think or we're, we're unthinking or we just, you know, we... We just believe by faith as if somehow that, that precludes any rational thought, which is nonsense in itself. But, you know, in Romans 12, verse 3, it says, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has given to every man the measure of faith. I love this statement. Think phroneo. It's the same word, again, that we just saw a moment ago. And it literally means to exercise the mind. And the second part here, this aspect, uh, is simply with intent. This is how we're to be as Christians, exercising the mind, to think with intent. Okay. <clears throat> now, again, let me look at the verse um, above all things, oh, sorry, the second part of this, this, these four things, above all things, have fervent love among yourselves, for love shall cover the multitude of sins. Now, these are the instructions that, that we're given here. So you know, the, the first one, I just once again, is to be sober, to think, to watch and pray. Then we're to have this love for the brethren. And it says love shall cover the multitude of sins. You know, I, I just kind of wish the church grasp this verse 1 peter 4 verse 8 above all things have fervent love among yourselves for love shall cover the multitude of sins you know what there wouldn't be any church splits if people understood this verse if people lived this verse you know the only reason ever in scripture we're told to separate is because of doctrine if people go and preach or teach a doctrine that is false we're to separate ourselves from them that's the only reason. Sadly, so many people get up and leave churches because of some silly reasons. And often it's simply because they're not willing to talk or to, to explain or to share or to grow together. You know, and it, it, it does trouble me sometimes that, that people have left our fellowship for some silly reasons. Sometimes just because they weren't willing to talk or to, to find out the truth about a situation. If this was applied and we use this in our lives, it would deal with so many of the problems, not just with our fellowship, but with fellowships across the world. Above all things, have fervent love. This isn't saying you know, that you've got some natural inclination to love everyone in your own fellowship, because we're different. We've come from different backgrounds. It's, un it's an unusual situation to have all of us with our own different life experiences to have come together into one place, we're going to have some rough edges. We're being built up into a spiritual house, living stones next to each other. A few of those rough edges need to be knocked off. But you know what? Well, that's part of the growing process. But if somebody sometimes knocks one of those rough edges off, you know, sometimes people just 
fly off the, the deep end and they make a big issue of it. Or you know what they so and so said to me, or they they put it this way. You know, look, we, we're to love each other. And yeah, we get things wrong. Sometimes we make mistakes. Sometimes we don't do the things we should do or don't say the things in the way that we should say or sometimes we don't say things at all that we should say. But notice the, part, the second part. Love shall cover the multitude of sins. Now, if we, if we make mistakes, well, there should be more love than there is mistakes. And then we'll have a great fellowship. You know, we need to encourage. We need to build each other up. Again, it's amplified in 1 Corinthians 13, the great chapter on love. Also, Proverbs 10, verse 12 kind of alludes to this. You know, we're not to be indifferent to sin. We are to help those who are overtaken with a fault. I, I wish we saw more of that. You know, sadly, Christians find someone with a fault and they're just cast out, cast aside. You know, it, it really uh, is something that's uh, saddened me uh, over the years to see Christians that suddenly are exposed that they had a problem, uh, an, an issue with sin. And they're kind of ostracized. They're cast out of the church. You know, those individuals, if they're willing to be repentant, they need to be embraced and loved and cared for and prayed for and encouraged. Because truthfully, there are many others in the church whose sins never come to the surface, who are just like that. And we all need to work together and we need to help each other. None of us have got it right yet. And this is what Peter's saying here, you know, that we haven't got it right, but we want to. That verse again, we read from Psalm 119 earlier verse five and six you know we're not where we want to be but we're going to be where god wants us to be and we're on that process of being transformed at the moment you know we're to cling to one another in love rather than being committed to expose uh, and, and censor others who don't conform to our uh, status quo whatever we think that is then we're given this and this is interesting it says use hospitality one to another without grudging as every man has received the gift, even so minister the same to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. I think this is really interesting. Notice it says use hospitality. It's a tool. It's a means to an end. Use hospitality to get this job done of loving each other, of helping each other. It's a tool. It's not just be hospitable to the people you really like. No, no, use it as a ministry tool. This is what it's saying. In fact, Peter then goes on. In fact, he says, you know, as every man has received the gift, even so minister the same to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You know, it's really use whatever gift or gifts God has given you to help the brethren. Now, Peter's going to be quite firm on this at this point. And we said last, you know, we were studying James, that James is quite uh, stern in the way he puts things. But Peter really here really makes a big thing of this. See, you've been entrusted with gifts by his grace. And really, the, the warning here is don't bury them out of fear or insecurity. Don't say, oh, I don't think I'm good enough. I don't think I can do that. I, I don't know. I haven't had enough experience. No, that's not the way we do it. You know, we are to step out in faith. God has given us these gifts. We are to use them. We're instructed to use them for his glory. Let me read this to you from Luke 19. As they heard these things, he, Jesus, added and spoke a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem. Now, in that, the, we are, all of us, close to the heavenly Jerusalem. We're getting closer and closer to that day. Uh, and because they thought the kingdom of God should immediately appear, they were waiting for the kingdom of God. And so Jesus then gives us this, this little warning, this little lesson, and this applies very much to us. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. Just as Jesus has gone to a far country and he's going to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. That's what we've been told to do. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returning, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how every man had gained by trading. Okay, now this is speaking of us, effectively. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. All right, he had been given gifts, and he did something with it. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over ten cities. And by the way, I don't think this is just some casual little story Jesus is saying. I think there's millennial implications to this. OK, this individual had been given gifts. He had used them and multiplied them for gl the glory of God. And he's given reward 
I believe that will be seen during the millennial kingdom. Anyway, the second came and said, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And it came to pass, uh, sorry, came five pounds. And he said, likewise to him, uh, be thou also over five cities. And another came saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man, and thou takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest that thou did not sow. And he said unto him, Out of thy own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thy uh, money into the bank that at my coming I might have required my own with usury? You know, at least you could put it in the bank and I'd have got an interest on it. And he said unto them that stood by, Take him, uh, take from him the pound and give it to him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. For I say unto you that unto every one that uh, shall be given, uh, that, oh, sorry, that hath shall be given, and from him that hath not even that. Uh, than he has shall be taken away from him look the lesson there is really clear that you have been given gifts and talents you are expected to use them please don't be like that individual that thing you know through fear through whatever reason just kind of puts it buries it to one side and doesn't use it for the good of the body all right peter carries on and says look if any man speak let him speak as the oracles of god if any man, you know, if if you've got the ability to speak to others, well, then do so in a godly way, and others will be edified. If any man minister in whichever way you minister, let him do it as the ability which God gives. Notice who is the one that gives the ability? It's God. That God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion for ever and ever. Amen. Again, the ability comes from God. Again, just as these talents came from God in the first place, God will give us the ability. He'll give us the strength. Do you remember the, the trouble that Moses put himself in when God asked him to go to Egypt and speak? And he starts saying, well, I can't. My tongue doesn't work very well. And God says, look, Moses, I made the tongue. Come on. And of course, eventually he shares that role with Aaron. But, you know, look, God will give you the strength and the ability you need to minister for him. But the, the clear teaching here is every one of us have been given gifts. We need to use it for each other, for God's glory. Chuck Minister said this, his failure to exercise your spiritual gift defrauds us all in the body. Think about that. If you don't exercise the spiritual gifts that God has given you, you are defrauding everyone in the body. Yeah, it's a tough thing to take, but it's the, what scripture teaches. We are to be ministering to each other. Why? Well, let's get back to where we started, because we're in a spiritual battle. Because we need that encouragement from each other. We need that support. We need that help from each other. We're in this together and we need to understand that we are commanded to love each other. And that means giving. Beloved, I, th I think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. You know, Peter knew firsthand of the fiery trials that he'd been thrown into since stepping out in the faith. Just think about this for a second. Peter had barely been a Christian for about 40 plus days, and he finds himself preaching to a crowd of thousands. So none of us turn around and say, I'm not ready, I'm not prepared. Because if you want somebody who wasn't prepared, it's Peter. And yet he stepped down in faith and God used him. Uh, and then, right, his third sermon was to a hostile group of Jewish, and we're told in Acts 4, 5, rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as them as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. I mean, this is like any of us going up to debate at Oxford University, in, you know, to, to the Illuminati, to all the, to the great minds and scholars there, those who are antagonistic towards Jesus Christ and so on. That would be the kind of situation. I mean, these were the theologians of their day, and there's kind of Peter the fisherman now debating with them. Well, you know, all of us would say, oh, I can't do that. Peter did it. And he'd only been a Christian for, you know, just over a month. Peter then had to deal with the, a dispute that occurred in the church. He was barely ready. You know, he hadn't been a Christian himself by, long by that point. Yes, he'd walked with Jesus for three years. But in terms of being full of the Holy Spirit and growing in grace, just really, really young. And now he's dealing with a dispute that occurs in the church regarding about how the people were being fed and the Grecian widows and, you know, so on. And, and then it's followed by death threats. And then Peter's summoned to speak to a Roman centurion, not knowing what's going to happen to him. He ends up giving him the gospel and Cornelius and his household are saved. 
And then following that, James is killed by Herod and Peter's arrested in prison and chained to soldiers. Now, think about that. Peter says, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. <laughs> this strange thing, you know, don't think that you're unique. In fact, your trial may be to train you to serve others in a similar circumstance. God often allows us to go through things so that we are equipped to help others. And don't make any excuses why God can't use you. He used Peter. He used countless individuals through scripture. We can got so many examples we could go. You know, I don't decline from service for the fear of consequences. You know, what do you have here on earth that is more valuable than your relationship with Jesus? There is nothing. But rejoice in as much as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. You know, the believer suffers in fellowship with his Lord. And we to expect this. It should be something we're very under, we're clear about, that as a believer, we will suffer in some ways because we follow him. You know, we can't be partakers of his atoning sufferings. OK, they stand alone. Jesus going to the cross, bearing the sin of the world. We can't experience that. And, and you know, none of us could endure that. But in terms of the, the suffering, striving against sin, that all that we spoke about earlier, we can experience those kind of things. You know, and we suffer being willing to give up that which we cannot keep to gain that which we cannot lose. I'm sure you know that quote by Jim Elliott, one of the missionaries to the Orca Indians. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he's evil spoken of, but on your part, he's glorified. You know, none can be true to Christ and at the same time loved by the world and its systems. It's very clear. The world is not going to love us. And, you know, we cannot expect the approval of those who reject and misunderstand our Savior unless we are willing Okay, this is the only way that we can get that approval is if we're willing to lay down our weapons in the battlefield of our minds, admit defeat to the world, the flesh and the devil. But that's the very thing that Christ has given us victory over. You know, the only way you'll get approval is if we're willing to basically admit defeat. But that's the thing that Jesus says we shouldn't ever be defeated on because he's given us the grace. If only we reach out, if we resist the devil, he'll flee from us. We draw near to God. He will draw near to us. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. Um, uh, forgive me for putting it this way, but I, I just this is my paraphrase of what Peter's saying. You know, if you're going to suffer, don't let any of you be so stupid as to suffer for these things. In other words, don't do things in front of the world that give them cause to persecute you, ridicule you, simply because you're doing things you shouldn't be doing. All right. This is what Peter's saying at this point. No follower of Christ is called upon to deserve the ill will of the wicked. All right. In other words, you shouldn't be doing something that gives them cause to say, well, look at that person over there. They're, they're not a nice person. They're, they're, they're you know, speaking behind my back or they're doing these kind of things. Or, you know, uh, we, we are to be beyond reproach. We're to give a no appearance of evil. Don't let the world have cause to to ridicule us or to complain about us because we do something that's not right. Again, there's no room for retaliation or infractions in the Christian witness. We are to show the love of Christ. Peter incidentally puts gossip here in the same category as a murderer, just as an aside. I think it's quite interesting. Last couple of verses. Yet if any man suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Uh, interesting, this, this uh, word Christian is only found a couple of times in the New Testament. It's first used of those uh, believers at Antioch, but it's used here. Uh, but we are not to be ashamed. We've got nothing to be ashamed of. The world's blindness is no match for our sight. You know, there was a bumper sticker that used to go on cars some years ago. Christians had it was laugh now. One day we'll rule the world. You know, and it, it's true in a sense. This is what the Bible tells us. The meek shall inherit the earth. They might not get us. They may laugh at us. They may mock us. They may say all sorts of spiteful things against us. It doesn't matter. You know, they're speaking from a position of ignorance, not knowing Jesus Christ. And again, you know, we're not to be ashamed. But Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation. And in 1 Timothy 1.12, 
Paul there says to Timothy, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I've believed. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. You know, I'm going to leave it there because this last verse requires a little bit more time. Uh, and I want to go through this in more detail. So let's uh, let's call that uh, a, a, a a wrap for this morning and we'll pick up that verse next time uh when we we come back to this chapter okay let's uh, let's just bow our hearts and just pray father thank you so much for this time lord impress these things upon our hearts lord let us live lives that are separated to you that are clean that are pure that are holy lord from this moment from this day lord may we be determined to to strive to struggle if necessary against sin Lord, that we don't allow sin to have dominion over us, knowing that you will give us the grace, Lord, to overcome whatever the world, the flesh or the devil throw at us. Oh, and Lord, give us, Lord, a a passion and a desire to see Jesus, to look forward, Lord, excitedly to his coming. Father, help us to love each other. Help us to pray. Father, help us to be praying for each other. Lord, to be sober-minded, to think Oh, Lord, we just pray that you work these things in our hearts and minds now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.